Differing Things is a podcast which focuses on how far religion and society have deviated from the Bible. Differing Things will cover many topics, both spiritual and current, to draw our listeners closer to their creator. Now for today's host, Bill Petrie. I'd like to welcome you to today's edition of Differing Things, and I have a special treat for you. I have on the phone with me a dear brother by the name of Dan Sheridan. Uh, how are you doing today, Dan? Not bad. I've uh, I've been called special, but never a treat. <laughs> well, that's true. Anybody that knows you will definitely not call you a treat. <laughs> so uh, I think I think it's interesting that we can use technology to be able to. Uh, you have a conversation like this. I, it, it's a good thing. Yeah. Oh, it's, it's wonderful. I think, uh, I was just thinking about this the other day. I was talking to somebody about, you know, in the first century, you know, when uh, God prepared the world for Christ, he had the Romans set up all those roads, you know, and uh, Christians carried the message over the Roman roads. Well, today we got technology and and uh, I think uh, we should take use of every everything we can to get the the word of God out and this is uh, the latest marvel I agree totally so if you don't mind Dan could you maybe give our listeners a little bit of information about yourself what you'd like them to know and maybe some of what you've been doing lately uh sure well I'm uh, 53 years old father of uh, seven children I got some grandchildren too and uh, my wife and I have been married for over, oh, going on 34 years. Uh, born in the Midwest, a Chicago boy. Grew up, born and raised in Chicago. Uh, grew up with a Catholic background uh, to uh, my parents who are still alive, close to 90. And um, it, was, uh, it was when I was a younger, in my younger days, I was, uh, uh, you know, I grew up Catholic and by the time I was a teenager, I kind of did my own thinking and, and uh, went astray from the Catholic Church and became a Bible student when I was, uh, my wife and I got married young, and that's when I started taking the Bible seriously. And so I spent uh, the 90s, you know, studying some of the classics, you know, like uh, uh, mostly like dispensational authors like John Nelson Darby and all the Plymouth Brethren and Harry Ironside and and I was really, I was a terrible student in high school. Let me preface it this way. It was my love of the Bible that turned me into a reader. I never read a book in high school. Wow. And I barely passed high school. I was a terrible student. And Bill, I'm not kidding. I just had no, I had no fondness for learning. Uh, the only thing I want to do in this, was in the 80s was hit a baseball, watch the Dukes of Hazard, and play rock and roll music. <laughs> and uh, But the Bible really started making me become a, a, student and um i always dreamed you know i wanted to be in the ministry all those years but i was i was with the plymouth brethren uh those early days but I, it was that hunger for the word of god that got me started and uh around the, about the mid 90s i started having issues because i i couldn't imagine living in a world that god made me worry about bills while there are people going to hell right and I was just oh, just so bothered. I'll, I'll never forget one day driving home uh, from an appointment, yelling at God. I mean, yelling at him. I think I called him every name in the book. And I said, but I love you, you know, but you know, I can't believe you send people to hell. And, you know, and you got to make me worry about this. And I got to pay a bill. And, and, uh, and so, uh, 
and, and, and so it was around that time that the, my son, remember those chick tracks? I do. I do. In fact, I, I used to hand those things out like crazy. You and, and me both. Yeah. And uh, there was the one called This Was Your Life. I remember that one. I remember that one. Yeah. I do. My son read it and he woke up in the middle of the night screaming because he had lied that day and thought he was going to burn in hell forever. Now, this is a five year old kid. And there was something about that that really struck me. There's something wrong here. And, and then uh, it was around 1998, 99 area. Uh, at this time, I had left the Plymouth Brethren, and I, I had joined the Grace Movement under, you know, C.R. Stam and his group. Yes, yes, I'm very so I started seeing, seeing some distinctions in Paul's <laughs> message, and I, they appealed to me, and so I joined them. Uh, but there was a pastor named Ivan Bergner, uh, and I consider him a spiritual father in many ways. Ivan's still around in St. Louis. It's funny that you mentioned Ivan. I actually had the privilege of meeting Ivan in, uh, when I was pastoring a church in St. Catharines, having him as a guest speaker. Yeah, yeah he's a great man. His son and I are very close friends. And uh, Ivan was teaching Hebrews. And I'm listening to him as we talk, as I talk to him on the phone regularly, because we had a Plymouth Brethren background. And so when I joined the Grace Movement, we kind of you know, uh, the, the leader of the Grace Movement at the time introduced me to him. He goes, you guys got a lot in common. And we turned out we knew the same people in the Brethren, you know. Right. And but one day, you know, back in those days, we always had a problem with Hebrews. And I'm listening. We're talking on the phone. And Ivan's teaching me Hebrews. And I said, where did you get this stuff? It was so good. Well, he was reading a book by Charles Welch. Okay. <clears throat> and so... I look online, and I this is early days of the internet, and I find a book by Charles Welch, and the cover converted me. It was called Hell or Pure from the Blood of All Men. Okay. And I've I'll never read that. You've ever read it? I have. I've read that one. Yeah. And so I remember I, once I saw the cover, it was like a weight lifted off my chest because I had enough Bible background. This is what I always tell people. Study the Bible for, if, if, if for the most important reason is when you get the knowledge of the Word of God, when truth comes your way, you'll recognize it. Just by reading the cover made me realize, wait a minute, Paul never talked about hell. That's true. He never so did. There must be something, this Gehenna thing that Jesus spoke of must be something different. Why would Paul leave that out in his message to the Gentiles? And right then, that's when I started thinking. And I got the booklet, and I started studying Sheol and Hades. I looked up every reference to those words and the concordances. And I became a good annihilationist, finally. <laughs> <laughs> uh, and once you, go, once you go that route, I always call annihilation the halfway house. You know, right. it's, the, it's the halfway house. It's not satisfactory because as long as sin still lingers, you know, you don't have a successful Savior. Even annihilation doesn't solve that. Right. Um, but it was really starting to think, uh, I, I remember, I'm, I'm sorry if I'm, uh, I've been sick all week, so if my storytelling's uh, a little bit uh, jumpy here, forgive me. But I remember years ago when I had been reading all the Brethren authors and guys like William R. Newell, they always warned you about men like Bullinger and A.E. Nock. Right. And I remember in those days when I was the Brethren, I always go to this Christian bookstore in Chicago that was run by a branch of the Brethren. 
and they had concordant versions on the shelf. And I would look at it, and I remember feeling naughty looking at it, you know. <laughs> I'm looking at heresy here. I'm looking at naughty. Well, I it was at that time I started learning about the eons. And so I got a concordant version, and uh, I started reading that along with my companion Bible. And it just came to the conclusion that Jesus Christ must be a successful Savior. Having read Romans 5, 1 Corinthians 15, and uh, that it just, there, there's no doubt in my mind that Jesus Christ is going to save uh, every member of the human race. Uh, that his cross is, uh, that he's greater than Adam. That's, I remember that being the, the chief thought. Who is greater? Adam or the Lord Jesus Christ. Right. And the idea hit me that <clears throat> eternal conscious torment eternalizes sin. It doesn't get rid of it. It actually makes sin indestructible. And that just didn't seem right to me. And then it was over, over that time you started just realizing that, uh, uh, you know, that's how I came to see the salvation of all mankind. And, of course, I, don't, I, I, I believe in the biblical perspective of death as well, that our hope is resurrection. Right. You know, there are a million other things we can go into, Bill, but uh, that's how I got to the point where uh, understanding the, 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 the power of God in salvation gave me a new confidence in him. And all other things, you know, there have been various views dispensationally and, and so forth that uh, I've worked my way through in my life. But understanding God as a savior of all humanity has been the greatest change in my life and has given me joy and peace. And I have never lost confidence in God, not a single day in my life since I understood this doctrine from the scriptures. That's wonderful. Now, I did have a real quick question. You had mentioned understanding the eons. Now, I'm sure some of our listeners would have no idea exactly what you mean by that. Yeah. Um, so, so would you mind elaborating on sure, that? Sure, absolutely. Um, we have this, in, in our King James Bible, it talks about having everlasting life. And we read forever and ever and all these terms. And people read these and say, you see, this word forever, you're going to be, you're going to go to hell forever, or you're going to, you know, perish forever. And they were taking, you know, words that were translated from the Greek. And in the Greek, you know, there, there is maybe one word that maybe presents the idea, but the idea, the, the word eon and the, the, the nouns and adjectives eon and uh, eonios uh, never mean eternal. Uh, they're, they're limited in time. And I think the idea behind the word eon is something flowing. And so when, talk, when it talks about this present evil eon, it's not talking about this present evil eternity, right? That's correct. In some places they'll translate it forever. In some places they'll translate it, you know, like the King James calls this present evil world. Uh, but that word world is eon. And it's the idea that we live in a time period where it, the, the tendency, the flow of things is toward destruction, right? We're, we, we're bent on hurting each other. I mean, that's just the way it is. Correct. Uh, we live in an evil eon. Uh, you know, it doesn't mean there's not good in this eon. There's plenty of good. I'm having a good time right now talking to you. 
Well, thank you. I am too. You know, and so uh, there's plenty of good in the Sion, but with, with the fall came the, both blessings and misfortunes. And so uh, we have a present evil eon. So eon has to do, it's a characteristic. It's, 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 it was used in um, First Samuel to, that Samuel was going to go and spend forever at the, temp, at the tabernacle. Right. Well, it meant the rest of his life. Uh, you know, as long as he was going to live, he was going to be serving there, you know. Right. So the word eon, uh, there was no such thing as a, a forever perishing, you know. Uh, when it talks about God being the eternal God, he's the Ionian God. It means he's the, always the, the, the outflowing one, the one who always is the source of truth and blessing and light. It, is not, it has nothing to do with his longevity. You know, God doesn't talk about his longevity. He's the, you know, self-existent one. Right. But he's always, uh, he's always flowing out to humans with truth and light and love uh, and even his judgments. And so anyway, so the reason why I bring up the, the, the eons thing is that when you uh, have a translation, and I love the King James, don't get me wrong, it's a very good translation. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. It's easy to criticize. But if you just fix a few parts of it, you still have a decent, very good translation. Right. And, and um, uh, but when you understand this word forever, like when it says you know, they'll have eonian life, what that means is it's not about longevity. Is that means that you and I, Bill, when we put our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, God elected us to serve him in a way in the future. I believe it's referring to our future role in his kingdom to be a blessing to others, to flow out to others. Uh, and it, it's humbling to know that you know, when, when God created a tabernacle, he solicited his people, he solicited the Israelites' help to build it, remember? Yes. And the idea that he would bring us in, into his great purpose of the eons, to bring all humanity back to himself. And that's going to be the, the, the goal of the coming periods of time, the kingdom of God, is he's going to use people like us, uh, flow out through us to the world until one day, God is all things to all people and to all beings. Right. You know, yeah. it's interesting, Dan, when you mentioned, um, you know, the words eternal and forever and how most translations in English really get the word aeon and the derivatives of that word incorrect. And I want to share with you a few moments. What really started me on a journey very similar to yours was reading two passages. Um it was Jude verses six and seven. And I had a cross reference in my Bible. It was one of those cross reference Bibles <laughs> that took me to Ezekiel 16. And I, I just want to, for a minute, yeah. mention this passage. Jude verses six and seven would read this way in the King James. And the angels which kept not their first estate but left their own habitation, he hath reserved in everlasting chains under darkness unto the judgment of the great day, even as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities about them in like manner giving themselves over to fornication and going after strange flesh are set forth for an example, suffering the vengeance of eternal fire. Mm -hmm. And then Ezekiel 16.55, Fred, 
When thy sister's Sodom and her daughters shall return to their former estate, and Samaria and her daughters shall return to their former estate, then thou and thy daughter shall return to your former estate. And what hit me was if there's if Sodom is an example of suffering the vengeance of eternal fire, and yet they're being referenced as being returned to their former glory and estate, then how can eternal be non-ending? Yeah. You know, and I, I think that's the same journey you were on. Yeah, there was another one in Isaiah very similar that this is, uh, I think it's in Isaiah 32. I'm just going off my memory here where it talks about a place is going to be desolate forever right. until. Right. Until the spirit be poured out from on high. So it was forever until. <laughs> right. You know, in other words, it's going to remain in that state, that condition. And uh, but yes, Jude six, and when you look at that Ezekiel passage about the restoration, and and really, uh, most don't have they don't have an answer for that, uh, because if they thought about that passage, they would have to see that Sodom's this this uh, the Ionian fire, they're suffering, they they suffer the uh, the vengeance of a fire that came from God, right now, and and it's interesting. We can go to where those cities were today, but there's no fire. That's right. So they suffered something that came from the hand of God, and that's the main point of that. Instead, it's been morphed into eternity uh, because of this. And, and again, and, and this to me, I, I'm very, what's the word? I'll use the word very liberal in my acceptance of many views on many issues. If you, I think the basics are if you believe the scriptures are the word of God, you stand on that. We can have fellowship all day long. Right. But the one doctrine I abhor is eternal conscious torment. And because it is an absolute attack on the character of God, it justifies sin and it is a slap in the face of the holiness of God and is, is everything about him. And when these passages, like you point out in Jude, have been morphed into this, the nightmarish doctrine, which you can't even describe. The idea of eternal conscious torment is so wretched. It's so awful. And the fact that this has been important in the word of God, it should be one of our, one of our duties today to ensure that this thing is is consistently and constantly rebuked, and of course with love, but this the doctrine is so horrific, and I, there's not a shred of evidence in the Word of God when you read it correctly. You know, I always found it interesting that when Adam was in the garden, God never told him that he would suffer the idea of what we think of as hell today. Right. You know, and in fact, that idea is foreign to the writing of Moses. And you would think of all authors in Scripture that Moses would be the one that would really push that agenda um, <clears throat> in the penalty for um, sin being an eternal, non-ending, conscious torment. Yeah. 
but he never does. How, how would have under how would have Adam understood <laughs> when you eat thereof, thou shalt surely die. Right. And and death is a return. Genesis three nineteen. It's a return to the ground. It's a return to a condition that you were in before. And I tell people, death is a return. And and it's interesting. Uh, and I'm sure you might have heard this before. But when I started teaching. Uh, before I taught the salvation of all, again, I was teaching, you know, that the, the dead are dead. You know, I was told by the, the leaders in the grace movement. What's that? You can't go to the Old Testament. Wow. Uh, Harry Ironside wrote that. He said, you can't go to the Old Testament to figure this out. In other words, God kept this whole thing silent until Luke 16. And so, and so, uh, there's a funny story. One time, I was uh, when I when I was uh, I had a friend who was a had a uh, they had a church up in um, Strathroy, I think that's Strathroy, Canada, a Baptist group. And they asked me to come up and speak a few times because, and I, I knew one of the guys there. And I said, "Well, you're not going to want me as your pastor. I'll tell you that, but I'll be happy to speak to you." And so I went up and I spoke, and at the end of the weekend, they were impressed. They wanted to get me as their pastor. And so I said, I can't be your pastor. I can't agree with your doctrinal statement. And they said, well, what's wrong with it? Well, let's just look at your, your doctrinal statement on the wrath of God. And it was on hell. Right. And there were all 15 passages in there. And I said, now, one of these passages speak about the hell you refer to. And they said, well, let's talk about it. All right, so I, we got a board out, and I wrote the, the scripture verses down. I said, let's look at this verse. First one was Romans 1.18, the wrath of God is revealed from heaven. What's well, about hell? I said, where is it about hell? What is the wrath here? Uh, and then we explained it in, 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 uh, uh, you know, in Romans 1, that it has nothing to do with an underworld judgment. They said, oh, you're right. Well, we crossed that one off. The second one was Second Thessalonians. Uh, you know, with flaming fire, taking vengeance on them, sure. they're not God, and so forth. Well, well, that's not an afterlife event either. Oh, we crossed that one off. Well, by the time we were done, we got down to Luke 16. And I said, now, we have gone through all these scriptures, and you've read eternal hellfire into every one of them. And as we're down to Luke 16, you could saw they were, they were getting nervous, too, because I was getting rid of their doctrine of hell. Uh, I said to them, who is Jesus speaking to in this in this passage here? And the answer is he's speaking to the scribes and Pharisees. And I said, do you think the rich man and Lazarus is literal? Well, yeah, there he's teaching the doctrine of hell. I said, so you're telling me, without going into the details, that God waited. He didn't tell Moses. He didn't tell David. He didn't tell Melchizedek. He didn't tell Abraham, Isaac, or Jacob. Uh, he didn't tell Samuel. He didn't tell Daniel. He waited all the way until this day to tell a bunch of Pharisees about the doctrine of hell. <laughs> and they're looking at me, and they just didn't know what to do with that. And I said, I'll give you my, uh, my interpretation of the rich man and Lazarus, but you're not going to like it. And you can't read all these passages about death in the scripture that speak plainly about it and then, and then, and then uh, 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 reinterpret, make the rich man Lazarus undo it all. 
Well, right. the long and short of it, they couldn't handle this because they were Baptists and they would have, you know, it would have been caused trouble. Uh, but they ended up putting all those verses back in their doctrinal statement, even though they admitted every one of them had nothing to do with hell. That's sad. And but but the point is, they don't go to their Old Testament for anything, and they won't start in Genesis three. If you don't start in Genesis three, your trajectory is way off. That's uh, true. You don't go there. You don't go there. You don't go anywhere. Um, you know the dead. You know and even our favorite passage in First Corinthians fifteen. It says the dead will be made alive, not kept alive. True. Uh, and so anyway, uh, but that's all part and parcel to our to our message is the is the resurrection. I this whole afterlife doctrine is part, as far as I'm concerned, goes hand in hand with the eternal conscious torment doctrine. They're both just as bad. Right now, that that brings up an interesting point. How how did the idea of eternal torment become the main the main view of Christian Well, if you go back to the early, you know, and there's this historical blackout. It's it's funny. Um, all these denominations try to try to anchor themselves as far back as they can go, right? Sure. But there's an historical blackout because there was a departure from the truth from the very beginning. And and that's why you had this a mixture of Judaism and, and Christianity that came out of the you know the uh, you know the the first you know this the, the like the eighty or ninety years after the apostles died off and all of a sudden you have Christendom and bishops and all where do these people come from and it was from you know a corruption of the truth and a lot of this was I think part of the Latin influence crash Christianity as opposed to the uh, uh, to the um, Hellenistic side, which is more cheerful. Latin side is where we get all our hellfire stuff. But right. they, they, you know, when when the church got more religious and it got more pagan, you know, it had to have a way to control the masses because in those early days of the persecution, uh, those early persecutions, people wanted to start main, maintain control. And how do you maintain control? What do we do with these people who failed under persecution? Do we let them back? You know, all of a sudden people felt like they were running things, that there was some kind of apostolic succession. And with that, you know, you know, came this, this idea of bishops and, and, and control. And when, when there comes control, there becomes power and becomes power. There's corruption. And then how do you keep the masses in check? You have to keep them in check through fear. And one of those fears is then you make the church the soul, you know, you, you turn the church into something that doesn't look anything like the biblical idea of an ecclesia. And you give it the power of life and death. And so now there's no salvation outside the church, you see. Right. They mediate right. for you. And so if you're outside the church, you're going to go and uh, you're going to you're going to go to hell. And so remember, they gave up the doctrine of the resurrection and replaced it with death. Instead of asking, where will you go uh, if a man dies, shall he live again? They ask, where will you go when you die? Right. And so you, if you go somewhere when you die, you got to put them somewhere, don't you? Or where are you going to put them? <laughs> well, we're going to have to man make up some compartments. <laughs> <You know? laughs> right. And, and so that's what happened is, is that uh, it, was, it was a historical blackout, which you can surmise what happened. It was a, it was a pagan influence. You know, from that old world, the Greek god Pan, you know, had his hell. And it's a mixture of all these pagan religions. Um, 
and uh, and then uh, along with Greek philosophy, you know, the Christendom worships Greek philosophy, right? And you know, it's almost part of they call it the classics. And I don't know about you, but Scripture says the world through wisdom knew not God. And this idea of Plato's concept of the soul is is absolutely unbiblical, and it's the one Christianity has adopted. Indeed, it has, and it, it's created all kinds of problems to a person who re, who really believes the scriptures and takes those scriptures literally. Exactly, it's a very difficult it's a very difficult thing to escape. If you've been entrenched in this all, it really takes, and I, and I, and I say this when, when people ask me about being a Bible student, I tell them it really is hard work in this time because you have to go against almost everything uh, that you're taught in Christendom. Now, let me just say this. Let me back up. I believe that if you have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, you're a believer. Right. God is, uh, God is the God of all grace. Uh, I believe I was a believer since I was a very young man, even though I still believe in hell and other things that I would repudiate today. Uh, but if you want to be a Bible student and progress, it's going to require more than cliff notes and uh, you know a few you know a few small booklets that you know turn everything into a you know like a bumper sticker statement. You know what I mean? We like to have our you know and like in politics, you know, if you can't put it on a hat or a bumper sticker, people aren't interested. You know, they don't think deeply. But the Bible calls the Bible calls upon us to think deeply, and that's what's really missing is is deep reflection in the Word of God. And without that, you cannot grow. God will not, God will not teach you without the word of God uh, before you. And this is something most people don't realize is that you don't come to these under, understanding of these things without a serious investment of your time. And it will cost you. Uh, it, it's a serious investment. It really is. And there are no shortcuts to biblical maturity. And the stuff we're talking about here, you know, when I started studying hell, I, I went through every reference. And I think there's a total of 857 references just to the word uh, soul in the Hebrew and Greek. And the question is, is the soul immortal? Well, I looked up every reference to the word soul and I never once found it ever in all 857 references connected with immortality. Right. So right. the question is, who's right, God or Christendom? And very obviously, God is right. Yeah. And so we have to stick with that. And, but, and that's how, I, and, and just so you know, that was when I first came to see this stuff, I was still a pastor. And I lost my church because of this. I'll never forget when I first came to see the truth about hell and salvation. And I thought, you know, because I was with a bunch of Bereans, remember, Bill? They brag bragged about what Bereans they were, right? Yes. And I said, and if I may tell the story, I don't mean to do all the talking here. Uh, but I, I announced one Wednesday night, I said, I want to give a talk this Wednesday night Bible study. We're going to start a series on the on the soul. And everyone was all excited, you know. Sure. And so uh, 
Wednesday night, we all get together and, and we're in the basement of the church. And uh, one of the people went to the church made me this big, I always wrote on a uh, board when I was a pastor, I wrote a, you know, with a, you know, the dry erase boards. Right. And they bought me this giant one because I'd, you know, I'd write, you know, it was like five by eight feet or something. It was just an enormous board. And I said, I got there once and I said, we are going to start a series on the, stu- uh, the study of the soul. And I said, but what I'm going to do tonight is I'm not going to teach you. We are going to look at the references to soul in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. But before we do that, what we're going to do is we're going to go around the room and I want everyone to give me their definition of the word soul. And we'll write it down. And I said, let's do that first. And so we went around the room, Bill, and it was hilarious. Something they were so sure about. I got, I think there were 10 or 11 people there that night. And I had 10 or 11 answers on the word soul. Right. I wrote them all down. So after we were done, I said, okay, now, without any objections, I want to start in Genesis. And I said, what we're going to do is we're going to read every reference to the word soul. And we're going to look at our definitions. And if our definitions don't match, we're going to cross off the definitions as we go. Are you guys, are you guys okay with it? And they're like, oh, yes, God's word over our thinking. You know, yay, yay, Jesus. <laughs> and so, um, and I'll never forget, the first person to give his answer was the other pastor. And he was much older than I was. And he was a hellfire man. And his definition was, it's the non-corporal part of man that distinguishes him from animals. And he said it with great, you know. Great stuff. I said, all right, here we go. Let's start in Genesis and start crossing off. Well, you come to Genesis 1, verse 20, and it's the fir- that's the first reference to the word soul. And it says that let the, in the King James is, uh, you know, let the waters swarm with every creature that hath life. And I said, there it is. Uh, the word life there is nephesh, which is soul. What are they? Well, they're <laughs> animals. They're water creatures. And we looked up and the pastor's, uh, the other pastor's definition went first. Sure. The moment that happened, you should see the changes in the visages of the people around the table. Then we went to the other references. All, all This is only in the first 11 chapters of Genesis. We went through the first 11 chapters, and those few references, we had erased 11 definitions on the board. And all of a sudden, the room went from excited and yay God to what are you doing to my theology? <laughs> and, yes. and they were getting angry. I mean, angry. They were saying, are you saying we're no different than animals? And my response was, I haven't said a word. We're just reading the word soul as it appears in the Hebrew Bible and comparing it with our definitions. I haven't taught you anything. So basically they hung themselves and got mad at themselves for the, you know, for doing it. Almost like the Pharisees when they would try to engage Christ in a discussion as, and trap him in his own words. That's it. And I thought they'd be excited about it, you know, because I had this new truth. I'm like, this just makes God more precious, you know, but no. 
No. And that was the end. That was the beginning end for me, Bill. We lost the church. We lost our house. We lost everything after that. And, yeah, uh, and, and all, but you know what? There's no regrets of it because the greatest discovery in my life. Right. I can, uh, I can relate to that because I too have lost a, a pastorate of a church over, over this doctrine. And I think we all say that the word of God takes precedence over, over our own opinions or thoughts or theology. And the reality is very few people are willing to, to take that step where it actually does take precedence over it. They're, they're willing to only go so far. Now, if, if you don't mind, Dan, I just want to ask you a, a couple of questions on some of the common, some of the common objections I hear. Sure. To the salvation of all. And I'm sure they're the same ones that you've heard. Doesn't everybody being saved ultimately give everyone a license to sin? Well, that's the question that's commonly brought up. Does not give people a license to sin? You know, Paul dealt with that, you know, right. in, in Romans when he taught grace. Uh, they said, uh, you know, should we sin that grace may abound, that, that kind of thing. Sure. Uh, but people are always bringing up the, those kinds of objections. And I always ask the question, why would you bring that up? Are you wanting to sin? Is there something that you don't want to do that you, that you want to do that you're not doing now? <laughs> <laughs> and that's really how I answer, because I, honest to God, I, sometimes, you know, they say, are there, are there silly questions? And I think that's one of them. I agree with the you. question is, what are so what are you harboring? What do you want to do? I always put it back on them. What do you want to do? Is there something, you know, your neighbor's wife appealing to you or something? What's going on with you? <laughs> what is what is what is your fascination with sin? You're right. sin centered. Right. And uh, and that's the Roman seven complex. You're sin centered. And because you're sin-centered, you can't see clear enough to, to understand the character of the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, you know, and so, you know, I, that's, that's how I handle it. And, and, and uh, it really, there's nothing that has made me want to love him more than serve him better than understanding his grace. Paul says the love of Christ compels us. Right. And that's uh, one of my favorite verses. Yeah, it's it's his love for us that compels us. And now there is room for fear. And as believers, we don't want to displease God. There are things I, you know, I, I like to sort out those things in my life. But it's never out of a sense of, you know, uh, uh, being tormented or anything like that. It's just a... a you know, uh, like I, I feel about my father, you know, when I was a kid, I always wanted to please my dad, you know, because I have a great reverence for him. Sure. And, uh, but yeah, so, so that, that question, you know, we don't have to dwell on it long. I always just ask, what are you harboring? Right. You know, what do you want to do? <laughs> Let me give you the second one I hear sure. all the time. And I'm sure, I'm sure I'll give you the way I typically hear it, but there's variations of it. Sure. What about somebody like an Adolf Hitler? And you can take the name Hitler out and put in some other heinous historical character, you know, like maybe Joseph Stalin or yeah. Charles Manson or somebody like that. Yeah. What about these people? Haven't don't they deserve to just 
fry for <laughs> well look i think hitler had mental problems for one but and and uh well listen when they bring these things up again i i, I don't know if i ever told you this in our other conversations i was kicked off the radio for asking this very question <laughs> and, That's you know, uh, it was what about what about hitler and i said the reason why people say this and this is and then i'll bring this up again uh is that is there a sin that the the blood of christ cannot overcome is there an act is there is there any wrong that god cannot right is there any heart that god cannot change and the answer to that is there is none and people when they ask these questions i think they ask it because they're harboring self-righteousness right now i do agree that there are certain types of sin that are far more heinous than others uh what hitler did and and um i just watched an old classic remember robert mitchum i do i, I do. just watched the winds of war remember okay. that very good and Very the stuff they did on the Holocaust to me, you know, it's almost, it's almost unbearable to watch. I thought, what these evil men, uh, but these evil men, these evil men will be dealt with. When God's judgments are on the earth, the inhabitants of the world are going to learn righteousness. Right. And these men are going to be resurrected from the dead and they're going to learn righteousness. And they're one day going to willfully and joyfully acclaim Jesus Christ as Lord, the glory of God, the father. And uh, there's no sin that God cannot overcome. But when these people talk about Hitler and they talk about all this other stuff, I, it is almost as if, and, and this is why I got kicked off the radio, I said people who bring up Hitler are self-righteous. They want to feel that they themselves are better than somebody else. That they've accomplished something that somebody else didn't accomplish. That's why they object to the salvation of the human race is because they have they don't feel they don't feel in unless somebody is left out. Right. They don't feel they they feel that their contribution is as of such that they should, that somebody else should be left out for not doing what they did. And so I think that's another one. Some of these questions I don't think they're they're logical questions. They're not they have no logic behind them. I think they all, they they reveal a heart problem. So this question about, you know, what about this is going to give you a license to sin or what about Hitler? I think these people have a heart problem and they haven't come. They haven't understood the grace of God. Right. And but neither have they understood his judgments correctly. Nobody talks about the judgment. And I, I, I'm going to say this. And I mean this in a way that uh, not that you don't or anyone else, but nobody speaks more about God's judgments than I do. In other words, I speak about them because they're in the scriptures. Sure. But it's a correct understanding of what God's judgments are. Can some of them be harsh? Yes. But none of them are eternal conscious torment. They're corrective in nature. We, God's judgments are always corrective to bring about a goal, even with the most ungodly. And there's a passage in, in Psalm 22, and uh, it says that... Uh, He's going to receive gifts uh, even from the rebellious. Uh, excuse me. Um, I'm going by memory here, and you'll have to again forgive me. My head's not quite right from the uh, a week of uh, being sick here. But it says, uh, oh, excuse me, Psalm 69, I believe it is now. Okay. Uh, that 
you know, uh, he, he led captivity captive and gave oh. gifts unto men. Yes. Even from the rebellious. <clears throat> even the rebellious are going to benefit uh, from the glories of God's kingdom and uh, from the, the lessons that are going to be learned therein. And uh, and so the, so when you think of Hitler and Stalin, all these other men, they, they were men of their times. Uh, given the set of circumstances they were in, there could have been anybody who would have done a Hitler or a Stalin. And history has kind of proven that anyways. That's true. You know, what did David do when he got into to, to authority? He got a little lazy one day and started taking people's wives. Right. And then you know, having that woman's husband killed. Yeah, and not only that, he had a bunch <laughs> of men killed. He had he sure over is. 39, there was a 39 other men were killed just so David, you know, can have a night on the town with another man's woman. Right. And so what about David? <laughs> you know, so, you know, but is it a matter of numbers? I mean, you know, David killed 39 and uh, Stalin, maybe 20 million. Uh, where's the cutoff? Sure. Where, where is God's grace? Uh, where's the line drawn? And, you know, we read about transcendent grace. Maybe it's not so transcendent after all then, huh? <laughs> That's true. So, yeah. You know, it's interesting that you bring up the idea of judgment. There was a book I had read not, well, a couple years back. It was called God's Glory in Salvation Through Judgment. And it was written by a, a man by the name of James M. Hamilton, Jr. And what he, what he actually goes through is every single judgment in Scripture yeah. to show how salvation is the end result of that judgment. And, and I think... The big problem that a lot of people have is we try to impose a human standard of judgment or our idea of judgment upon God. And because we want to be vindictive against somebody, we want God to be vindictive. Yeah. And Didn't God they put all his enemies in the lowest hell? Yeah. 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 And, so that's the idea. You're right. We want to we want to set the standards. And I think we do. Yeah, we that, do. That's that's a human disease. <laughs> we do. Wow, I can't believe uh the time went so quick. I'm gonna yeah. get to have you come on again and we can uh have have some more conversations. But before I, a pleasure. before I let you go, Dan, I gotta ask you this one question. Who's gonna win the World Series this year? Uh, let's see. Uh, we're going to go with the, the, the White Sox and the Cardinals and the Sox and uh, seven. Okay. It's okay. going to be the battle of last place is what it is. Bro. <laughs> it, well, I, I was going to say, if we're really going truly last place, we got to put the A's in there. <laughs> yeah. It's, uh, you know, I don't really know who is the, you know, it's, it's this, thank God it's not the Yankees. Uh, but, uh, no offense to some of your friends out in the East coast there. Uh, but, uh, you know, I'm a big baseball fan. I love baseball. And, uh, and so, you know, it look, it's looking like the same, same group over the last few years. You got the Dodgers and the Astros again. And, and, uh, I thought Tampa Bay would run with it, but they've fallen. They, they right. start off what like a 50 and three or something like that. It was, a, yeah. and, uh, but, uh, yeah, baseball, baseball is good medicine. It is. It is. But uh, on that note, Dan, uh, is there anything you'd like to add before I let you go? Yeah, just uh, anyone listening, thank you for your time. And, uh, you know, we talked about a lot of things in Scripture and deep study, but more, it's it's hard work, but it's it's rewarding because of this very thing. 
this is more than academics. You're learning about a person. Right. Uh, the Bible's the Bible was given to us by God so He might reveal Himself to us. That's the reward of Bible study, is to know Him. Uh, we didn't get a religion when we became believers. We got a person. That's right. And that's nothing, none other than the Lord Jesus Christ, our Savior and our Lord. And, and uh, it should be a delight to go to these scriptures to to learn more about the, His greatness and his goodness and then uh, of course uh, what our response to that is also and so i think that's the most important thing is don't be discouraged uh growth takes time when god wants to make a squash he takes a couple weeks when he wants to make an oak he takes a hundred years right so if you want to be a squash spiritually speaking take the shortcuts uh if you want to be an oak take your time well said well said and on that note good day and God bless all of you. Talk to you later, Dan. See you, sir. Thank you. We want to thank you for listening to this week's Differing Things podcast. If you would like to get more information about the Bible, please check out our website, www.beacon-ministries.org. Do not forget to join us next week for a new Differing Things podcast.